0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: Welcome everyone. So tonight this is the 3rd of a 10-part series on the paramis. Uh I was curious if there's if uh if there's anyone who uh, hasn't attended the last two or isn't familiar with what the paramis are. Are there any hands? Okay. There's a few. So I'll, I'll, um, go th- over those, um, do a quick review of those to begin with. The, the paramis are ten qualities that we can develop that really support this practice, that support doing um, mindfulness meditation and support the path to freedom, the path to liberation. So the first of these is generosity. The practice in many ways is about letting go. And so one of the things about generosity is really um, learning to kind of let go of some of the things that we hold on to as being so dear and sharing with others and seeing the joy that can come from giving it 's not a quality it 's not something that 's um, maybe generally taught so much in this culture you know a lot of what we we learn about is how to acquire as much for ourselves as we can, that, that that's what we need to be happy. So, so uh, generosity is really, um, in some ways, goes against that cultural teaching in this country. Uh, the next quality is sila, or virtue, ethics, morality. That's what I'm going to talk about tonight. It has to do with developing the way that we interact with others, the way you know how our speech and actions um, with other people um, affect our inner our inner life, our inner stability. The third one is renunciation. again, this is about Developing a certain wisdom about what is it that we really need to live, and what can we let go of? What 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 are we doing to complicate our lives in a way that doesn't really serve us? So you'll be hearing about that next week. And then there's um, wisdom or discernment, developing an ability to really see how things work in the world. You know, what when I do this. What happens? you know what you know doing this leads to that you know, so not not just the straight mindfulness of seeing what's happening, but also seeing the conditions that lead to certain things happening. so that's that uh, discernment quality is something that that we can also develop um, not only in the meditation practice but throughout our day, you know in daily life. these are all qualities that we can that we don't just work on for half an hour or 45 minutes a day when we're sitting, but you can really work on um, whenever you're awake or partially awake. Um, And then energy or effort. You know, this practice really takes, although it seems like sitting in meditation can seem somewhat effortless, there is a way in which in, um, examining our lives and developing the qualities that are going to support waking up really takes um, putting putting energy into it, you know. Uh, the sixth one is patience or endurance, you know, being able to stay when when things are not going the way we want them to, You know, being able to stay present and not shut down or, you know, go into ignorance or something else. You know, the, the ability to, to patiently be present with our experience and, uh, keep at it. Uh, the seventh is truthfulness. You know, developing a way not, not only to be truthful with others, but to be truthful with ourselves about what's really going on here, you know, rather than getting caught up in what is it that I wish were going on here, or, um, yeah, you know, other than what do I wish were going on here or what do other people wish were going on here, is what what's really, what, what is this experience, you know, as looking at it as as honestly and as accurately as we can, The eighth is determination. That you can see, say, in meditation practice, in the continuing to come back, the continuing to return. So you sit and you watch your breath, and five seconds later you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner tonight. Or, you know, you sit and you watch your breath, and then for the next ten minutes you're... Planning your next vacation, you know whatever that is, but when you recognize that that's happening, that determination to just keep coming back, just you know continuing to return to the present moment, and continuing to return to the to the practice, um, so that determination is an important quality. The ninth is loving kindness is really developing an attitude towards our experience of kindness and acceptance it can often be very hard. And then the final quality is equanimity. Developing an sort of an inner stability. There are often forces in our lives that tend to, to knock us about. You know, there's the basic ones of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and ill repute. You know, that, you know, we love pleasure and, you know, push away from pain. We, we like gain. We dislike loss. So equanimity is that, that ability to, to, be steady as these winds bl- try to blow us around. These these emotional um, and changing conditions of life try to blow us around. The equanimity is just some stability that that we know that we can we can be with them and not not get pushed around so much. So those are the the ten paramis. I believe that. The first one that generosity was talked about last week, okay. And the others are yet to come. So, it's a little trailer for the following seven talks, or eight talks. So, Sila. It's, it's part of the Eightfold Path. I think probably everyone who comes to this practice comes by having had some wisdom, some wise insight into the reality of suffering in their life and the wisdom to see the value in turning towards that suffering to really investigate it. That's probably the first, the first insight that, that brings someone to practice is not to try to find a better strategy to avoid that suffering, to either push it away or replace it with something more pleasant or just ignore it, but that there's some value in, in turning towards it and investigating the suffering. And that's the first noble truth. That was the first thing that the Buddha taught. Then, from there, there's the, the second noble truth is seeing that there's a cause for suffering. Again, if you've come to this practice, you've probably, if you didn't have some intuition or some knowledge that, that maybe there's a cause for your suffering, if your suffering was just completely random and completely outside of your um ability to have any effect on then you know why meditate <laughs> you know it's it's totally random so also having some some wisdom that um there's probably a cause for this suffering and the buddha taught that that cause is clinging and that's to be let go of and at least at some point in practice in some some ways maybe very very small seeing the third noble truth which is the end of suffering like when you see that clinging and you let it go even for a a short period of when it when it releases even for a short period of time seeing that the suffering vanishes um again that's that's a an insight that can that can come early on and give confidence that doing this practice will be beneficial. And then the the fourth noble truth is the path that the Buddha taught leading to the end of suffering, the the, the eightfold path. And so it starts with having this, these, this, these wise insights that I just talked about, that looking at our experience through the, the Four Noble Truths is a valuable way to address the suffering that, that we're, that we're experiencing. And the other wisdom part, uh, Wisdom element is uh, right intention, right intention, which includes um, an intention of harmlessness, of not harming ourselves or not harming others. Having that, that is as one of our intentions. And so, with those two wisdom elements of right view, basically viewing our experience through the four noble truths, and right intention. Then we're ready to proceed. And so the next three elements of the eightfold path all have to do with with um, virtue or morality or ethics. Um, in in Pali, it's called sila. And those three elements are right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So those are all, those all have to do with how do I, how do we act in the world? You know, what, how are we acting primarily with other people? And so right speech has to do with um, telling the truth, first of all you know, being honest. It also has to do with um, speech which is kind. So avoiding abusive speech or harsh speech. Um, Speech which is not um, divisive or slanderous. So not only Saying things that are true, but also saying things that might be true, but also are going to um, cause disruption between between people you know either slandering them or um, causing causing harm to to um a sense of community and connection. And then also, right speech involves um, avoiding idle chatter. You might ask, well, what's wrong with idle chatter? Um... I think over the years, as I've practiced, I realized when I feel prone to idle chatter, there's often something underneath that's being missed or being ignored. I might be feeling afraid. Um, I might be bored. You know, I I want something to be happening. Um, I might be anxious. I might be confused. And so the idea of just talking about things that really don't have much uh, significance or importance for me, maybe a way to cover over those. And so... So being willing to actually be with others in silence, you know, sort of what would happen if we didn't, you know, what would happen if I just sat with this person in silence? I had that experience with my mother just, um, oh, I think it was about two weeks before she passed away. I went to visit her at a, convalescent home where she was staying or well where she was where she was living and it was christmas it was christmas day and i i went and i s- sat with her and i don't know for sure what she was thinking her, she was wringing her hands a little bit and she was avoiding my my gaze and I tried striking up a conversation with her, and she said she wanted to go and watch the television and so we we went into the day room and sat and watched the television and I knew that her hearing with her hearing she couldn't hear what was what was going on, but she just she didn't she didn't want to um I don't know. She she seemed agitated. And I decided that it was just okay to sit with her and not say anything. And so we did that for about 15 minutes. And it was actually quite a rich experience for me. Um, I don't know if it was the last time I talked to her, but it was the last time that I was ever alone with her before she went into a coma. So I felt really appreciative that I didn't go into some kind of idle chatter and um, chose silence instead. So I think that's a you know that's that's an option. That we don't always recognize Let's see uh, there's right action which I'll, I'll talk more about as we get into the precepts and then the other uh, element of the Eightfold Path having to do with with Sila is right livelihood and The Buddha didn't say a lot about what specific jobs would be considered right livelihood. I think he he did enumerate a few which he considered to be wrong livelihood that involved um, dishonesty and and harming other people through the selling of uh, weapons or poison or um, trading in human beings. yeah i'm I'm very fortunate i i think in that i've worked now for about in various capacities for about forty years as a scientist where um, honesty and accuracy in describing our experience is um Prized and rewarded. Not that scientists aren't susceptible to, uh, you know, doing things that are dishonest or not telling the truth or, or being deluded, but generally speaking, there's a str- you know a strong um, support for truth. So, so I've been very fortunate in that regard in terms of right livelihood. I've also talked with friends who work in other areas of commerce where what's prized is making the sale. And so things like um, truthfulness aren't supported so much by, by the environment. So when I first started sitting with Gil he would often say that in some ways all you really need is mindfulness that with mindfulness with sufficient mindfulness you'll see and these other factors will arise and so you don't you don't have to try to to do a lot of different things just notice what's happening and there's sort of a natural um seeing an understanding that will arise. In some ways, I think that's correct. However, the Buddha didn't stop with just mindfulness. He did teach specific um, techniques for strengthening some of the qualities that are required for waking up. And so in this area of uh, ethical behavior for lay people like ourselves, he basically had five training rules, five rules that he gave to people to practice in their lives to help develop the qualities that would lead to uh, more stable and... Um, contented heart and mind so that the, the deeper insights that come from meditation could be seen. You know, that while we have these, these, this first wisdom that there's a value in recognizing your suffering and turning towards it and examining it, and meditation can be a way to do that, It's hard to do when our minds and hearts are agitated. If we're, if we're doing activities in our daily lives that continue to, to feed greed, delusion, and hatred, then the meditation can only get so far. So changing the way we behave throughout our day is important so that then... The meditation can kind of work more deeply. So, so the five um, precepts, the five training rules that the, the Buddha gave, are actually stated in negative terms. They're in terms of you know, don't do this and don't do that, and. The description that I heard, that I read from a teacher, Bhikkhu Bodhi, some people ask, well, why don't you just say what it is you want, you want to develop rather than what you want to restrain. And his simile had to do with, if you're gonna, if you wanted to grow some plant, you don't start by putting the seed in the ground in your garden. You start by weeding the garden. You get rid of the the weeds and you fertilize the soil and and you get it ready and then you put the seed in and watch it grow. So, likewise with these precepts, this is sort of like, they're sort of like um, pulling the weeds out of the garden first before you try to develop um, things to replace them. So the first precept has to do with the training rule of abstaining from taking life. Now, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty tall order to do it, you know, completely and absolutely. On retreat, it's relatively easy. Um, you eat vegetarian meals. Um, the rooms, well, at least I should say in the United States. It could be different elsewhere, but there are relatively few bugs. And even where there are bugs, they usually have little insect catchers, so you can catch them and, and let the, you know, put them outside. Uh, I really take this as as a in daily life it's more challenging. Um I'm a homeowner so occasionally the house might get, you know, I had some uh, termites. So, you know, what do you do about those? Um spiders well those I found that by and large, I can just catch and release um, rats, well, rats in the uh in the attic, well, I called an exterminator, and they they killed the rats that were there, but then they also sealed up all of the entry holes into the house so that no more could get in, so um. So none have returned. And what else did I have? Oh yeah, one time I had something like 50,000 Italian honeybees that had made an enormous hive in my, in my spa. And I had two choices. I could either, for like a hundred dollars, I could have the exterminator come and just kill them all. And for more like five or six hundred dollars, the exterminator would come and actually Take out the hives and put them in um, bee boxes, and then take them while they were still alive to the Central Valley, where they would be used to uh, pollinate um, fruit trees. So, in that case, although it cost more money, it, it was actually, you know, an easier decision. So, th- these are, I mean. So these were some of the ways that I've I've dealt with this precept. Um, let's see. And then the second precept is the training rule of abstaining from taking what is not given. Now I don't imagine anybody in this room probably makes a living from either as a burglar or as a robber, but there can be many other ways in life where those opportunities to take what's not freely given can arise. The example that that teachers used to give was taking paper and pens and paper clips from work. You know, they're not really being freely given, but you can sort of rationalize, well, you know, this is not too big of a thing. I think in the last 20 years, probably fewer and fewer people actually use paper and pencil. So maybe that's not such a good example. But the other one that came up for me was um, downloading things like music and movies and books from the Internet. You know, more and more there's been um, various means available to get. To get songs, to get movies, to television shows, books, content like that, over the internet in ways that um, weren't possible 20 or 30 years ago. And so, recognizing, is this content being freely offered to me? Is this something that's that that whoever it was that that wrote it that um, performed it that produced it um, are they offering this to me freely and I'm not sh- I mean i I th- in some ways I think it's there it's it's not such a hard question to to answer, but my understanding from reading blogs and so forth, is that there's a a substantial number of people that see um, those types of of content as uh, sort of having a right to take that without compensation. So that might be another area where you can look at At this, at this precept of, am I taking what's not freely given? The third training precept is abstaining from sexual misconduct. So the, you know, the sex drive is, is, can be quite intense. You know, it's sort of what's kept us human beings going since we started. So, it's, it's, it's a powerful force and a force that can bring happiness and joy and uh, connection. But it can also, if not, if not done wisely, can lead to jealousy, um despair, you know, even you know violence, and some pretty unwise behavior. I was thinking about it just today as I was reading about this governor from South Carolina that you know was in a position of power and had you know seemingly a a happy life, a wife, and children and You know, just, you know, running off to Argentina to have an affair. And I expect that the regret that he expressed in the press was genuine. You know, that it, that it really, it, it took a toll on him and on his family and everybody involved. And then the final precept is abstaining from intoxicating the body and mind with drugs and alcohol. Now, the first four precepts all have to do with actions towards other people. You know, the not taking life, uh, not stealing, not engaging in sexual misconduct, and um not lying all have to do directly with actions with other people. The uh restraining abstaining from intoxic- intoxicants is different in that it, it only has to do with yourself in some ways. The downside of it is that it can often lead to heedful be unheedful behavior. And so as I was looking at the list, I thought, well, how many times when I've been intoxicated have I engaged in false speech or sexual misconduct or taking what's not given, um, taking life? Well, I that hasn't been my direct experience, but, but intoxication is a tricky thing. You know, some people can have a glass or two of wine in the evening and um, feel relaxed and um, I think feel fairly confident that they haven't done anything harmful to others. Um, For other people, you know, even the thought of having a drink, you know, people who have gone through a, a very difficult period of recovery have to be careful, you know, like have to watch... Watch their um, their thoughts and their actions, you know, moment to moment and day to day. Um, about nine years ago, I was working in northern Sweden, and so I went to this place called the Ice Hotel. It's a hotel that's made all out of uh, snow and ice. And some of my colleagues and I went to the bar. And because the whole bar is made out of ice, it's too cold to serve beer. So all they serve is um, flavored vodka in shot glasses made out of ice. And we were drinking these things and drinking these. And at some point I realized happiness was, uh, was just one more drink away. Like one more drink and I would be happy. And then it just dawned on me that this was not leading to the happiness that I was seeking. I was seeking an unconditional happiness, not one that required everything, you know, the conditions to be just in a certain way. And in having that insight, I decided... I don't think I'm really going to drink after it. You know, I'm not going to drink again. And so after that trip, I just um, haven't drank. So I feel fortunate in that 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 insight came to me fairly early on in my practice. And it hasn't been a struggle. It hasn't been something that I've regretted or had to... um, Really exert a lot of effort or uh, willpower to, to not pursue. But before I can pat myself on the back for that, a couple of weeks ago I went to my 35th college reunion. And there was about six of us who had all been in this one fraternity together. And as we hung out over this three or four days, It was amazing how many of our stories started with, remember that time we got really drunk and... (laughs) And, yeah, I guess there were a lot of stories like that. And it was also amazing how many times when we tell a story, how none of us actually remembered it the same way. So this thought that, that you would get drunk and remember what you did accurately... Um, really got challenged when we all tried to tell, you know, the same story. So, I think this cultivation of, of sila, of, of ethical behavior is real important. And I encourage you all to 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 perhaps read more about the precepts and really look at how do how do they work in your life. Which ones of these seem relatively easy, and which ones are a real challenge? And you may even want to talk to other people that you know from here about that challenge. As a way to support, um, as as a way of support. So those are my thoughts about about this, and I welcome any questions or comments or rebuttals.
0: I always end up doing this because it's quiet; and no one else says anything. But maybe somebody else was going to. Okay. So the precept about not engaging in sexual activity unless there's a long-term commitment, that was the way I heard it, um, is a tremendous uh lifesaver, mm-hmm. I believe. Uh, since I took that precept in 94, mm-hmm. I tell everyone about it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what our parents were trying to tell us. But, I mean, holy cow, so many knuckleheads I never got involved with.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you, Mary. Um, I was going to point out, there's a website called Access to Insight. And there's an an article by Bhikkhu Bodhi called Going for Refuge and Taking the Precepts. And in it, he talks specifically about, kind of in more detail about, you know, what, what conditions may be appropriate or inappropriate in um, engaging in sexual activity. I've heard... Two different teachers, uh, Thich Nhat Han had this take on it that sexual activity was should only happen between two married people. Another teacher I heard was somebody from the San Francisco Zen Center who had lived through the 60s and 70s and had tried all sorts of different uh, sexual relationships and gave what I thought was maybe more uh Late twentieth-century guidelines <laughs> for um, what she found experientially to be appropriate and inappropriate. Are you going to share those? Things? No, <laughs> no. I, so uh, it's Darlene Cohen, and she—I think her talk may actually still be on the website. But she goes into very interesting stories about the the wild and crazy days of the San Francisco Zen Center when, you know, couples would go with couples and um, all just basically about how much suffering, you know, like as much as people thought that, you know, we're now free to do what we want and we're all adults, that um, she experienced an incredible amount of suffering, either... um, being jealous of other people, or causing, you know, being the object of jealousy or obsession, um, you know that it's that there's just an incredible amount of emotion that can come up in in um, in sexual activity that that um, maybe unanticipated.
0: Something that I find myself dealing with a lot is um, right speech and having to abandon former ways of communicating where someone would say something outrageous, maybe in person or in email, and I could reply in kind. Or somebody would make some gross generalization, and I could go with it and Mm -hmm. talk about things in a sort of incorrect manner, and now I find myself taking things apart. Well, what did you mean by that? Could you be specific when somebody uses some some derogatory, you know, description of something? Well, what do you mean they did blah, blah, blah? What exactly did they do? Well, you know, what hurt about you? And it really has slowed my speech down quite a bit. Mm that there i think a lot of times speech before was an energy exchange rather than an information exchange mm. and i find myself sometimes replying to email that it's a little off it will take me forever mm. it's like how can i say this you know how can i ask this and how can i be kind and how can i reply and how can i be be honest and in Whereas maybe ten years ago I would be flippant about something mm. you know so it it's changing the way that that I communicate mm.
1: do you miss the old way
0: occasionally when people are really frolicsome with each other and they're mm. they're sort of you know vaguely insulting and and silly like that, it looks like they're having fun. Mm. <laughs>
1: Well, it, yeah. Thanks for saying that. It. it reminded me one of the other examples I was I was going to give about this. Um, well, right speech and false speech. One of the ways that I like to um, entertain others and have humor is to say things that are totally absurd in a way that sounds like. I'm totally honest. I mean, like, that I'm totally truthful and believe what I'm saying. And most of the time people get, okay, you know, this is, yeah, Jim, that's totally outrageous. But then a few years ago somebody said, you know, it's taken me a long time to figure out, Jim, when you're telling the truth and when you're not. And I realized that sometimes in the service of getting the laugh and getting, you know, kind of getting that entertainment, that I'm actually sort of undercutting my own credibility with people. So I think, I mean, I don't want to give up the humor, but I think maybe some way in, in like acknowledging afterwards that, you know, this was this was meant to be humorous um, is important. Well, I mean, and and some people get it, (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) Oh. (laughs) oh, you weren't being, oh, you weren't being honest. I see. Yeah.
2: Could I ask you? My name is Raymond. Could I ask you to repeat that part of the teaching it um, refers to not taking anything that doesn't belong to you. Could you repeat that again? I sort of missed. Oh, the, the wording. Yes, sir.
1: Yeah, it's. Um, well, the way that I'm, I've heard it on retreat is, for the purpose of training the heart and mind, I take the precept to refrain from taking that which is not freely given.
2: The question I have, and this has been a dilemma for me for the last several days, and these two things overlap along those lines of taking something that isn't freely given. Uh, we had a gentleman in our neighborhood recently um, on his own uh, remove a sixty foot sixty year old walnut tree happened to be on his property, but it was sort of a community asset in fact, I noticed when I was here tonight. My cousin Mary's one who's been after me to come. How beautiful the trees are in this neighborhood, and this gorgeous big tree was removed um, in six hours. So it took 60 years to grow, I estimate, because it was 60 feet tall, and six hours to remove. And that parallels the news I saw last night about the young woman that was murdered on Saturday. In Iran, you've probably, many of us have probably seen, all of us I'm sure have seen or at least aware of the demonstrations in Iran. And in particular, it sort of culminated with the murder of a young, very attractive young lady, 26 years old, who regrettably was probably in the wrong place at the wrong time or for whatever reason. And she's she's only the most noteworthy fatality. I'm sure many people have been murdered and even more have been beaten. In both cases, the death of the tree and the death of the human being, they present questions that I'd like to hear you think about and talk about as far as taking something that isn't freely given. In other words, the young lady did not freely give her life to the paramilitary people that killed her and beat others. And most of us in our neighborhood were were not pleased about this giant, gorgeous tree being removed. And in both cases, there are obviously living creations if you will mm. so my question the, the struggle i have going inside is is not so much being angry about these behaviors of course i'm obviously angry about the terrible events in iran obviously but i, I but but not normal human everyday reactive anger it's more the moral dilemma of how do we then move into a civilized discourse a balance, an equilibrium that addresses just these kinds of abominable, and that's my attitude towards the tree, these kinds of abominations in the human community. So mm-hmm. that's that's my question, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about it.
1: Well, I'd like to ask you, have you talked to your neighbor about the tree? I mean, expressed to them... Kind of what whatever sadness or yeah. grief or sense of loss you had about the tree being cut down? Actually, actually no, I have not,
2: and that's not because I'm um, shy about that. Uh, part of it is is because um, the circumstances haven't presented themselves technically. Mm-hmm. The other part of it is is the reason I raised it in this community tonight. Because it I sense here in this room a kind of amalgam of sensitive souls, human beings that care about the, the living experience, care about their journey. You know, as the old saying goes, people vote with their feet. And so by coming here in the first place, these are seekers, myself included, and they're willing to grapple with both pleasant and unpleasant circumstances. So part of my question tonight... Um, is to try to sort through what constitutes. Um, You know, I guess the challenge would be uh, in the old days, the thing, you know, the old cats and jammer kids kind of thing in the 1920s, you could go down to your neighbor with a guitar and bonk them over the head. (laughs) But I suspect that doesn't fit within the teachings of Buddha to go down and use a 12-string guitar, and lay it over the top of some guy's head. So my question tonight would be, what is a more appropriate way? Uh, you know, part of what I, I look at this, and there's a there's a micro and a macro lesson here. Are these, in fact, teaching moments? Are these teaching moments where where the neighbor doesn't realize that the tree is a very symbolic as well as actual living um organism, if you will. Mm-hmm. I mean, in many cultures, certainly in Native American cultures, you know, the, you w- one would never cut down a tree without a sacred ceremony or something like that. You'd make it into maybe a dugout canoe or something. But there would be a whole ritual around removing a really uh l- legacy kind of tree, you know. I mean, and that mm-hmm. would happen. There would be reasons that humans would have to um, employ the products of a, a great tree, but they would do so with great respect.
1: Right. It's, well... Yeah. I'm 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 thinking yes, that the moment for a ceremony like that is probably past. Yes. But I think the moment for connecting with your neighbor could could be any time. Sure. You know? I mean, we talked a lot about wrong speech tonight. Hmm. You know, what kind of speech might be harmful. Right. But there's also right speech. You know, there's the speech of saying what's true, you know, what's true for you. Um, and, and there's several elements to right speech. There's saying what's true, saying it in a timely way, saying it in a way that's useful, and also saying it in a, in a way that's kind. So that may be when you are talking about a teaching moment, this might be a teaching moment. The only thing is the person to be taught might be you. You know, that this would be the, the moment for you to learn how do how do I connect with my neighbor and express this you know, the sadness, the you know, the sense of loss. Um and who knows why the neighbor cut it down. I mean, you know, maybe it was diseased, maybe there was, you know, I don't know, getting into the roots of the sewer or something. I mean, I, I mean, I I can't think of all the possible right. things, but but having that conversation may be um, the place for you to learn and to and to teach.
2: I al- I also feel that there's a, a, and I don't say this to kind of you know. Flutter my ego or something, but I think there's a difficulty uh, in a local neighborly l- level here with me and the and the gentleman who removed the living tree and yesterday, or the day before this is the case may be at the White House at the press corps in the press conference, uh President Barack Obama was nailed for not being able to say something about the tragedies in Iran, including he did allude to the young woman who was killed on Saturday. And here's a man, here's a gentleman, who has two daughters himself, albeit significantly younger girls, but certainly as a parent and as a father, he could relate to the death of a young woman. And I found that the president was as tongue-tied about the death and the catastrophe in Iran as I was about the loss in my neighborhood. In other words, little Raymond here, a giant big president of the United States there, we're both morally struggling with how to verbalize our offense at these unacceptable, um, negative, and frankly destructive acts, yeah. you know, frankly destructive. I mean, certainly I was thinking about the young woman today and I thought, God, I'm 60 years old and she's 26. What has she, what will she not experience over the next thirty four years that I've lived? I mean, even back to whatever. I mean, just to be glib the the sexual thing, but whatever. This is a living human being that's not had the gift of those additional thirty four years. So uh, there isn't any clear answer here, I suspect. But uh, it does. It part of me realizes how tongue tied we can become, uh, stuck, if you will, when we're face to face with really difficult situations. All right. Thank you for listening. You've been very kind. You've been very attentive.
1: Thanks. Okay. Well, um, so it's a little after nine, but I'd like us all to sit for maybe just one minute. And as a suggestion over the next week, see if maybe you can pick maybe even just one of these precepts about not killing, not stealing, not engaging in sexual misconduct, not lying, or not indulging in intoxicants. Choose one and see if you can just work with When is that a challenge for me? What am I missing? Is there is there some time when I'm not paying attention to that particular um, area of action? So I thank you all for your attention, and I hope that you're able to return next week for part four of the series.